Welcome to Simon Cast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. I'm John Shaw, the director of the Institute. In Simon Cast, we aim to keep the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well through wide ranging civil conversations. And we're really delighted today to be joined by Anne-Marie Slaughter, uh, who's one of the most creative and interesting thinkers in public affairs in the United States. She's a CEO of New America, an important think tank and research institute in DC. Let me tell you a little bit about Anne-Marie. She's from Virginia. She has an undergraduate degree from Princeton. She went to Harvard Law School. She has a PhD from Oxford. Um, She's had an amazing career. She's taught at Harvard, at the University of Chicago, um, and she was a dean for seven years at the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton, which has since been renamed. Um, She served as a director of policy planning at the State Department uh, during the first two years of President Obama's presidency, and this is one of the most prestigious and important posts in American diplomacy. So we'll talk about that just a little bit. And since 2013, she has been the director of New America, as I said, a very important foundation or think tank in in Washington. She's also the author of a number of really terrific books. And I have several at my bookcase. The first one that came out a couple of years ago is called The Chessboard and the Web. Came out, I think, in 2017. Really important and provocative book about the shape of of world affairs. And her most recent book, which is one we'll focus most of our discussion on, is called Renewal, uh, which came out this year. It's a really, really interesting book. And I, you, you probably have read a lot of Anne Marie's articles. She had an amazing article in The Atlantic some years ago, 2012, I think it was, called Why Women Still Can't Have It All. It triggered a very wide ranging discussion about gender equity and, and the culture of care in the United States. Um, really important debate that she helped ignite. I should say, Anne Marie and I have had a couple of interviews in the past in Washington, and I've really enjoyed them, and I'm really looking forward to visiting again. So, Anne Marie, good morning. It's such a pleasure to be here and to pick up a conversation we've had in, in series. That's right. Well, Anne-Marie, let's talk a little bit about your background. You, uh, I mentioned you grew up in Virginia, Charlottesville, and your mom is Belgian and your dad's an American. I think you jokingly say you're the product of an international affair. But you said even as a high school student, you, international affairs and foreign policy in the world captivated you. Talk about those kind of initial interests. Yeah, you know, my... my uh father was on a Rotary Fellowship in Brussels in 1956 and really does say he looked across a crowded room and saw this beautiful young Belgian woman and fell in love. And they got engaged three months later. For my mother, that was, you know, leaving Brussels and coming to Charlottesville, Virginia in the late 1950s. I mean, you couldn't get a bottle of wine. It was it was a radically different culture than it is today. She spoke English. She'd been in England during World War II, and she'd been an American Field Service um, uh, student uh, in actually Cedar Rapids, Iowa in 1953, but still big culture shock. And every other year or so, she would take us, my brother and me, back to Belgium. And, you know, it was expensive. Uh, And so we'd go for six weeks, right? It wasn't something you did for, for a week or vacation. And over that time, my Belgian grandparents only spoke French to me, and I le- learned to speak French, and my name is Anne-Marie, and they're in, in French. But I always had this sense, this sense of moving between these two very different worlds, suburban Virginia, you know, with camps and sports and sort of standard American affluent uh, upbringing, but not wealthy, 
and this you know world where people spoke French and drank wine in the middle of the day and had had dinner in the middle of the day. And so that that crossing cultures was something from as long as I can remember, I knew I wanted to study foreign policy or international relations. And when you were talking, uh, I mean, this goes forward, but as, as you're thinking about launching a career, your initial impulse was to take a, a kind of a path, which is fairly well known in, in foreign policy circles, which is, you know, affiliate with an international law firm in Washington or New York, you know, work for a while when, when your party's in power, work in government, do that as long as it's productive and interesting, go back into the law. Uh, so that's kind of a, a familiar path. And the one hitch was that you found that you didn't really love working for big international law firms. So talk about the pivot you had to make. Exactly. My my college roommate, who's still a dear friend, would say that I was the most directed undergraduate she'd ever met. I had it all mapped out, as you say, law school and then a big New York firm. And then you worked for a partner who went in and out of government. and You did the same working for him or her at that point of him. And when I did work for Simpson Thatcher, which was the firm that Cy Vance, who had been Secretary of State when I was in college, it was his firm. He was senior partners, a number of partners who followed that path. And I really hated big firm law. And so I really didn't know what to do. You know, I spent I, I didn't accept their offer. I went back to Harvard Law. I worked for a number of different professors. I enrolled in a PhD program at Oxford, mostly because it gave me some status. I mean, if you're hanging out at a university, you need to be a student or you can't get an ID card or a faculty member, which I certainly wasn't. And after four years of really, I really wasn't certain what I was gonna do. And it was a very turbulent and kind of scary time. I realized my, my professor said, well, you know, have you thought about teaching? And I said, no. And frankly, my law school grades reflected that I hadn't thought about teaching, but I had worked for him and he could recommend me. And I wrote an article that was good enough to get published in the American Journal of International Law. And suddenly I found myself on the law teaching market and ended up at the University of Chicago Law School and loved it. I mean, really loved it. Law teaching was just wonderful. Uh, and I thought, well, my path, my path has just gone a different way. And then in 2002, uh, Shirley Tillman was president of Princeton. And I got asked, would I consider being dean of what was then the Woodrow Wilson School? And I said, no, my, we were settled in Cambridge and I wasn't going to do that. And my life took a different turn. But that turn then actually headed me back toward the State Department, which is where I'd wanted to be all along. But I got there through a very different route. Well, as I think about your career, I mean, there, there's been, as you say, the academic pillar, which was, you know, teaching and you've done some amazing academic scholarship, particularly in the field of international affairs and, and networks. Um, you've been a dean, as you said, you, you've worked at the State Department, the policy planning, and then also now you're running a think tank. And so you've done some of these, the kind of the, the part of American system that people applaud, which is kind of moving around and kind of kind of, you know, getting energy from different areas. And as I was preparing for this interview, I came across a couple of comments that George Schultz wrote in his memoir. And I thought about your career sort of like his, and I want to read a sentence or two and just have you play off it. He says, we've grown accustomed to, to drawing a bright line between the world of ideas dominated by ivory towers and the world of action, a world dominated by oval office, market floors, and fields of battle. My life and career, however, have known such bright dividing line. And then he goes on to say, I have benefited enormously from having had the chance to move back and forth 
from the idea from the world of ideas to a life of action, from a world of reflection to a world of high level decision making. Talk about that in terms of just your experience, because you have moved from academics to government to the think tank world and how these various worlds have kind of shaped uh, your perspective. That is so interesting. I don't know that quote, but when I became dean, George Schultz, who was a Princeton alum and a very proud Princeton alum, invited me out to California and he had been dean at MIT and he assembled a group of academic scholars and administrators. And it was really a lovely gesture to welcome me to this different world and also offer support from different people. And he became something of a mentor, not a close mentor. I didn't see him that often, but he was there for advice. And he asked me once, you know, what did I want in going into government? He knew I wanted that career. And I said, well, I'd love to be, you know, something like director of policy planning. And he said, oh, no, that's what all the academics want, because that's the think tank job in the State Department. You should go for an operational job. I didn't. And I now tell all my mentees that they should. I wish I had taken his advice because it was a big change going into the State Department, but it was still the world of writing rather than the world of actually negotiating. And I think I would have grown more had I moved to be an assistant secretary for Europe or something, something really much more hands on. For me, that happened when I took over New America because it's, it's an organization I've had to really build and it's like being an entrepreneur. Uh, but I think he was absolutely right. And I think more of us would benefit, more of us in the, in the world of ideas would benefit from really getting our hands dirty, not just doing the thinking parts of government. Well, just for a second on policy planning, because, you know, as, as this was, as you say, uh, an office that began with uh, George Kennan, uh, I think authorized by George Marshall. And I think Marshall's admonishment was avoid trivia, you know, and um, and yet, you know, and it's, it's a considered a respected intellectual uh, think tank within the State Department. But I'm thinking also, I think Dwight Eisenhower once said something like, you know, plans are nothing. Planning is everything. Okay. Um, talk about whether the U.S. government, <laughs> is our foreign policy susceptible to strategic planning, or is it just, just too impossible given the disparate interests and, and so forth? It's hard, and it's particularly hard in the State Department because you just don't have the resources, right? The military engages in extensive planning, and yes, they know that the plan goes out the window the, the minute that the action starts, but the process of planning is very helpful but they just, they can deploy entire, you know, parts of the Pentagon only for planning. The State Department is a much leaner operation and policy planning. I ran 40 people, you know, in a building the size of a city block with thousands and thousands of uh, uh, employees. And of course, people all over the world. So I do think it's hard. It's also people who run SP, as it is called in the State Department, the uh, policy planning, often are so close to the secretary that they just basically do whatever the secretary wants. Certainly my successor, Jake Sullivan, was, was like that because she depended on him completely. Or they're so remote for the secretary that they write speeches and memos no one reads. 
I found a happy medium by doing something Secretary Clinton really wanted done, which was the first quadrennial diplomacy and development review. It was basically a strategy review for the whole State Department and USAID. And I spent two, a year and a half on that. And we did actually develop a blueprint, not a grand strategy. It was more a blueprint for elevating the role of development and making it just as important as diplomacy and creating capacity for things like the conflict stabilization, uh, conflict and stabilization bureau, which was something we, we, we created. So it had a lot of impact, but I, I think overall, it's, we have never been able to plan in diplomacy the way we the way we do and the way Eisenhower did and probably the closest was the Marshall Plan which George Kennan delivered for George Marshall and even that was a grand framework that left it up to individual European countries to to spend the money the way they wanted to. Well, Anne Marie, let's talk about renewal. Uh, the book that you uh, published this year, very provocative, very interesting, and just the concept of renewal is something that you you develop because it's it's a term we use, and yet um, we sometimes conflate it with other terms that are similar but not exactly precisely the same. I know in your book you talk about you know restoration and reinvention, but you talk about renewal as something that makes new, fresh, or strong again. Talk about renewal in the context of both maybe yourself and your professional challenges and, you know, an organization and then also the nation, because that's sort of the framework you use about how this this concept is really applicable to all these realms. It is. I will start just by saying I believe in the power of words. You know, Justice Holmes said the word is the skin of a living thought and the words we use shape, you know, how we think and thus how we act. So I think it matters. Uh, It's not the only word for this process, but it's an important one. And it is, it's in between restoration and reinvention. It is, I think, particularly important for people because if I am going to change, and I say the the subtitle of the book is From Crisis to Transformation in Our Lives, Work and Politics, I believe you can change. I believe you can transform. But at least as a 63-year-old woman, I am not going to reinvent myself. There are parts that are going to just stay. And there's some, you know, they're my personality, but they're shaped by my lived experience. But I can renew the best parts of myself, right? So that's this importance that you have to accept that there's something there already, but you also have to accept that it can be changed or strengthened or improved. This is particularly important for our country. And I'll come back to the personal but we need renewal in this country. We, that's not restoration of what was, definitely not. But it's also not throwing the past away and condemning it for being, for many of the things we've done that have really been bad. But there's good things there too. And they are expressed in our ideals, the Declaration of Independence and, and the, you know, the words that Jefferson and a great man and a hypocrite uh, wrote, you know, we can, we can renew our commitment to those ideals and we can renew the way we pursue them. So it's a, it's a word and a process that looks backward and forward at the same time. In my own life, it was a journey that required what I describe as radical honesty, you know, facing uh, a set of mistakes, not just as in an individual moment, but using that moment 
to see larger patterns and facing those patterns. And as I say, looking in the mirror and trying to see what other people saw, not just what I saw. And I think the same applies for organizations. Many of our organizations are really being challenged uh, in terms of how we've contributed to systemic racism or, or really marginalizing others and definitely for the country. But again, I think we have to face our past and reckon with it and repair. But I also think we have to honor and heal and go forward with a positive vision. One of the most powerful parts of the book, I thought, was just this notion that you discussed about embracing criticism. Because a lot of us in jobs of, of some leadership, I mean, you, you do get criticized and, you know, your mental, uh, your mental response is to say, hey, you know, I can give a really profound defense of all that I'm doing. You know, I'm sure I'm 99% right. But one of your mentors said, well, then look at the 1% and jump into that, embrace it and feel like you discover what you can learn from that. Talk about that a little bit. It's probably the biggest lesson I took away from all of this, this idea of running toward the criticism, which is not our instinct, as you said, <laughs> whether if in family circumstances or professional circumstances. And he actually said, this was David Bradley, the chair of Atlantic Media uh, and, and a mentor. And he said, imagine you're having an argument with your spouse and it's clear to you that your spouse is 98% wrong. I mean, whatever your spouse is accusing you of, it's clearly his fault or her fault, not yours. But maybe there's 2% right. Maybe you know, and we often do know when we're being criticized, we're often most defensive on those sore points where we know we were late, or we know we didn't load the dishwasher, or we, whatever it might be. And he said, run toward that. And it's hard. And I actually took it very seriously. And I called all my board members and said, I need you to tell me what I'm not doing well. I need you to tell me what you really think or what you've heard. I even went back to the, my boss, uh, the president of Princeton, to, to hear as candidly as I could a kind of full set of perspectives. I didn't take all of it. it. You know, I you have to have a healthy ego too. And I knew some of it was biased or coming from places uh, of envy uh, or something, something else. But once you can do that, and again, think about it as a country facing our past or as an organization, you have you gain a strength and a courage from knowing that you kind of faced in some ways what are your worst fears. And you then know exactly where and how you have to change. And so it, 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 he said, run toward the criticism and, it's the, and accept it as the beginning of a learning journey. And that's really what it was. And that process was actually very positive. Well, let's talk about the, 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 the renewal in the context of the United States, because in one of the first passages in the book, you, you, you say, for the past five years, Americans have lived in a state of continual crisis. Our adrenaline is depleted. Our adjectives for outrage and incredulity are dull and stale from overuse. Partisan politics has dramatized a bleak landscape of division without nuance, reckoning, or reflection. Um, those words, I think most Americans would agree with wholeheartedly. How do we get out of that place? I mean, it just feels, you know, and I'm sure the, the world in the Northeast is many ways the same in the Midwest. It just feels like the country has gotten stuck into a place 
that is is not hopeful or optimistic. <laughs> so when when you when you ask me that, the first thing I want to say is stop reading the news. I mean, I honestly do. I mean, I, you know, you and I are in jobs where, of course, we have to pay attention to what is happening. But my parents, who are 87 and 90, recently shifted to reading the paper at five in the afternoon, not at breakfast, because it was wrecking their entire day. My mother would get so upset, you know, and they debated at the breakfast table and they decided to, you know, to read other books, right? To think about to they to get to engage in discussion with one another. What an amazing, amazing idea. And I do think that this the 24-7 news cycle, and this is not a new perception, has been like a cancer, right? It has steadily crowded out all the things that are also a rich part of our lives, right? Politics should be one piece of our lives. We, you know, thinking about sports or gardening or great books or community issues, right? One of the things that's happened is that local news has disappeared. So once you might've read the paper and thought, oh, there's a charity drive or, oh, you know, we're all uh, uh, coming together for some community celebration or the news of the different clubs. I can remember the daily progress when, when I was growing up. So I do think whatever you can do to put politics back in one piece, and that connects to a much bigger idea, which is that we have plural identities. You might vote for a very different person than I do, but you and I might both be parents. You and I might both be lovers of the Great British Baking Show, as we were just talking about. We might be cooks. We might, you know, have have a, a love of music. There again, it's to discover that what are the, the identities that connect us rather than just divide us? And there are many. And moving from there, I, and I think we do have to do a lot of work in terms of how to listen before we judge. And there, there's a wonderful book called High Conflict by Amanda Ripley, where she uh, has researched people who mediate conflicts around the world and also this lab at Columbia called Difficult Conversations. We need to learn how to suspend judgment to come closer to one another and to find that common identity. But then I think, and this is critical for the country as a whole, we need to ask questions like, what do you love about this country? Which is something the left often does not do. The right sort of claims patriotism for itself, but also what do you wanna change about this country? And it's hard for me to believe that there isn't anyone that doesn't wanna change something. And then I think we should use the next five years, which is the run up to our 250th anniversary as a country, 250 years since the signing of the Declaration of Independence. We need to use those five years for reckoning and facing the past, but also what could we be for the next quarter millennium? You know, it's a big time and we're gonna be a country that is a plurality nation. It's not gonna be a white majority nation. But to me, I take such pride that we will be the nation that reflects the whole world and the talent from the whole world. And yet we as Americans are capable of really great things. So again, I think there's a lot to be done on the individual level. And I'm working with, with projects that are, are doing that work and faith groups and civic groups, corporations that, that need to engage in, in that kind of work. And then I think we need a grand national project or many projects. It's not going to be one, but, you know, ask your organization, what could you do in the next five years? What are your 2026 goals? 
Well, you have, um, in, in both your writing here and also at New America, have advanced some really you know, bold and comprehensive and, and innovative uh, plans and ideas. <clears throat> Excuse me. But the one thing, and, and, and I'd like to talk about those in a sec, but the one thing that kind of occurred to me as I was reading about them, and I'm sure this is something you think about a lot too, is that we're struggling so much in this country to even do the fundamentals right, you know, to pass a budget, to raise the debt ceiling so we don't default on our debt, you know, to put together a fiscal plan in which this, you know, the, the, the resources we spend is roughly in balance with the ones that we take in. How do you balance the need for just bold, innovative thinking and getting back to doing the basics right in a way that, you know, a serious country does? I don't think we will be able to get back to the basics in the way that we need unless we fundamentally change our political system. Not, not move away from democracy. I'm all for democracy. But uh, we have an electoral system. It's not a political system. It's the way we elect our representatives that is driving to the extremes and ensuring that our elected officials derive more reward from thwarting action than from achieving it, depending on who is in power, right? One side thwarts, the other side tries. The, you know, no one ever said, the framers didn't think we were gonna have any parties, that nothing about the constitution says we only have to have two. As we become an ever more diverse nation, we need four parties. And for most of the 2020, for most of the 20th century, we had four parties. We had conservative Republicans, liberal Republicans, conservative Democrats, and they were roughly the same people. The, the, uh, uh, conservative, the, the uh, liberal Democrats from the South and the conservative Republicans were more, the, more or less the same. Uh, but we had the, so each party had a conservative and a liberal wing, and there was a lot of room for compromise. And now there's no overlap. But if we went to rank choice voting, and there, there are multiple ways of doing this, and Maine and Alaska have already adopted this, then first place, you could create a third or a fourth party without being a spoiler, right? Because what, what happens is you vote for the people you prefer. So if you and I created a, a third party, and everybody in Illinois liked that party, and you ran, they could put you at the top of the ballot. If enough people did that, you'd win flat out. If people not enough did, that, but their second choice was a Democrat or a Republican, the second choice would win. So it isn't a spoiler. And it incentivizes far more civil politics because I want to be some people's first choice, but I want to be a lot of people's second choice because if the first choice doesn't win, it defaults to the second choice. So it is a far better way to elect people. Other nations use it. Many cities use it. Uh, two states do, we could easily get to 20 states uh, in the next couple of years. And that would then be sending people to Congress who have an incentive to deliver for the majority, not for their narrow base. And your, your, your perspective is that this is something that could be done statutorily in each state and community as opposed to a constitutional amendment, which, of course, would, would not fly. So Absolutely. It can be done. In, I mean, it's on the ballot. It's going to be on the ballot in Wisconsin. It's on the ballot in a lot of places. And people say, oh, you'll never do that. But remember, you know, we did. We changed the Constitution to allow us to elect senators directly rather than from the upper house. This requires no constitutional action because there's nothing in the constitution about how the, the method by which 
we elect our representatives. And you can have multi-member districts, which is another great way of getting past gerrymandering, right? So there's one district and you elect three or four representatives from it. And again, you, you rank uh, who, who you, you want. So it's, it's up to the people of each state uh, and we can certainly do it. The only thing that isn't is the electoral college. And I, I think if you've got ranked choice voting and the, the people we'd elect through that, then we, we probably wouldn't have to change the electoral college uh, because we'd have a much better functioning system. But that would require a constitutional amendment. And I don't think this country is ready for reopening the Constitution yet. Well, one of the other kind of big ideas you talk about in your book is creating, again, this is in the context of 26 when we're you know, focusing on the 250th anniversary, was what you call a new frontiers commission to look at national goals. And I think maybe in 1960, uh, they had a, a big discussion about national goals and a lot of intellectuals and so forth were, were thinking about you know, the future of the country. Talk a little bit about how that might work. Yeah, I, this is exactly because, again, as much as I do think we need to reckon with our past, and again, I grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia, so I watched Monticello move from total veneration of Thomas Jefferson. Maybe he was, you know, you expected to see him walking down the street with a halo when I was growing up uh, to, to a very realistic portrayal of, of who he was uh, in, in the round and all the, the terrible things he did. Um, but I do think we need this positive vision as well. And so the 60s is a great example. The 60s, we had the civil rights movement. We were forced to face what was happening in the South on the pages of newspapers, on television. But we also had the race to the moon. Right? There was this sense that we were a nation capable of great things. And so to create a National Frontiers Commission now would be to say, you know, where can we really transform, transform our educational system? Where can we become world beaters, right? Not just the great tech companies, but we as a country, you know, what are the things that we can imagine and achieve? And I remember, you know, Barack Obama appointed Biden to eradicate cancer. And that was out of the White House. Those are the kinds of goals you could, you could imagine, Bio, environmental goals, medical goals, uh, new ways of working. But I think we need something like that, again, to lift our sights toward what we can achieve rather than always fight, it's fighting in the present and reckoning with the past. And also in your book, you talk about the importance of, of national service and how instituting an ethos where people would spend a year or so um, serving in some capacity could, could bring together communities that just really do not see each other and don't know each other and demonize each other. Yes, I deeply believe in national service. I would love to see it compulsory, but that probably won't happen. It, but even if we made it expected. So for instance, in Britain, it's normal for kids to take a gap year between when they graduate from high school and, and go to college. And of course, in the pandemic, there was kind of an enforced gap year. But if the expectation were, you're going to take a year between high school and college. And as the mother of sons, I can tell you, it's <laughs> one of my sons took two gap years. It was the best thing he ever did, just in terms of maturity. But if the expectation were, you're going to devote that year to a year of service, and the government made it, and again, local government, state government, national government, if the government made it easy for you to do that, subsidizing it, arranging to, so you would get paid, 
you would then come into contact with so many other Americans. You could be planting trees. You know, you could be working on infrastructure projects. You could be uh, helping, you know, with with elder care. There's so many things that we, we could do. But I think, again, it's about finding those identities, those common identities that are not political. Many of my parents' close friends were Republicans and we were Democrats and there were plenty of fights, but their friendship was bound, was you know, based on shared interests and, and just liking each other. Well, Amory, you had a, a very interesting article in the New York Times this weekend on President Biden's foreign policy, foreign policy. And I want to read a couple sentences and have you kind of expand on your thinking because it's, uh, and you were just saying that he's sort of moving from a very, you know, a lot of different camps and he seems to be kind of maneuvering around, but hasn't really set on a fixed direction. And you say it's time to break, break free of 20th century thinking. The frameworks, paradigms and doctrines of that era of any kind are simply insufficient to meet the challenges of the 21st century. Bolder thinking is required, thinking that shifts away from states, whether great powers or lesser powers, democracies or autocracies, it's time to put people first, to see the world first as a planet of 8 billion people rather than an artificially constructed system of 109, 195 countries and to measure all state actions in terms of their impact on people. And you've talked about planetary patriotism also in that essay. Expand, what are you thinking? Uh, <laughs> I, I, this article has gotten huge response. I'm actually quite uh, surprised. Uh, and I've gotten response from inside the government as well as, as outside. So it's a challenge, right? And I, I'm not suggesting that we wipe away national governments. I'm not suggesting that we wipe away the international system we have built. Uh, those things will continue. I am saying that we need a mindset shift and I started my career as an international lawyer. I taught international law for 12 years and as an international relations expert. And law and politics are based on the what we would call the Westphalian system of sovereign states, right? And it goes back to 1648, the end of the 30 years war, the peace of Westphalia. It of course took centuries for the sovereign states that we have today to come into being. But it wasn't always so. Before 1648, people thought about the world together, the known world uh, to many people. And I'm saying we need another big shift where yes, we have governments and we even have institutions that are based on states, but that is overlaid. And I talk about this in the chessboard and the web with a view of the planet as a whole. And that when you're looking at state action, you don't think about it in terms of just great powers jockeying for advantage. You think, what is the impact on people? So in US-China relations, it is so tempting, particularly for those of us who grew up during the Cold War to say, good, you know, it's us versus them. We're the superpowers, it's the G2. Anything that is bad for them is good for us and vice versa, and we're gonna somehow win. And President Biden talks about winning the 21st century we're only gonna win the 21st century if we stave off planetary disaster. And it doesn't matter whether China is you know, one up or one down if we all go under. And that's true for global pandemics. It's frankly true for a lot of cyber 
crime uh, and, and for basic human flourishing. Uh, does it really matter if Americans are that well off if you've got really millions or billions of people migrating because of climate, because they can't live uh, where, where they're supposed to live? So I'm, I'm asking for a new way of thinking that really says we need to look at the impact on people. So if you withdrawn from Afghanistan, you would have thought much more about the impact on Afghans rather than the impact just on the United States and, and uh, where we are in the Middle East and develop a kind of calculus that's, that really pushes us to collaborate not only with other governments, but for civic groups and corporate groups and universities and scientists, all the, the, the resources we have below the surface of the state. Also in, in Chessboard and Web, you, you made that really powerful example of, of Syria, where from a geostrategic sense, it's, it was, it's clear to see why President Obama is saying, look, we don't need another war in the Middle East. But when there's millions and millions of people who are displaced and that has roiled the politics of really certainly Europe. Um, if, if so, it's even though on the one level is a kind of a ge geostrategic imperative, stay out. Its impact on people actually has geostrategic consequences. Exactly. And what we traditionally have thought of is there's geostrategic, geoeconomic, geopolitical. That's big state rivalries largely. And then everything else, the human side, development, human rights, humanitarian crises, that's peripheral. And I'm saying, no, that's not peripheral. In the end, even our geopolitical competition has to be aimed at doing the, the greatest amount of good for the greatest number of people. And yes, in Syria, had you, had you really stopped Bashar al-Assad from using chemical weapons on his own people and barrel bombing them, you could have stabilized the country. I was not never suggesting sending in troops. I was saying we have the ability to force him to fight fair. And had he done that, you'd have had a, a settlement. You would have had far fewer migrants. But also right now we are raising an entire generation of Syrians who watch their country be destroyed, who are growing up in refugee camps and who have no love for the United States because they see us as having encouraged them to revolt and then having abandoned. So the, the, you know, in the end, a state is an abstract concept. It comes down to people. And I think we now live in a world, particularly the digital world, where we can in fact engage people and measure the impact on people in a way that we could not before. And we've had a couple of questions emailed in. I want to read one at least. Uh, it's William from Carbondale who asks, uh, he says, the fabric of U.S. society feels like it is being seriously ripped apart, if not shredded, as the events of January 6th demonstrate. What concrete actions can we take to reweave re that fabric so that we respect each other, even when we differ in terms of political values? Yeah. <laughs> you know, Thanksgiving's coming up, <laughs> so you can practice. Uh, if you have a relative uh, who is of a politi different political persuasion, you can actually start to think, look, we have to see one another as humans first. You can ask questions like, what do you love about the country? Or better yet, you can try to find the areas where you see each other as having as sharing something, whatever that might be. And if it's your relative, you're likely to know. 
and to then talk about how it is that as as human beings as americans we can we can take our differences seriously but not to the extent that they destroy our ability to see each other as fellow humans and we are going to have to do that much more broadly a lot of it is reaching out to people who you really think have, are beyond the pale and I, you know we've been we've been here before in our politics but it took us to a war and we don't want to go there so i think it's reaching out i think it it is doing things like working for changes in our political system because i i promise you if we had ranked choice voting trump supporters or extreme trump supporters let's say really the the kind of hardcore that are that are that would put their own views ahead in my view of of saving our democracy or the rule of law that's about 20%. That's like the alternative for Deutschland in Germany or any of the European countries. They have about 15 to 20% really hard right and they've got some really hard left folks as well. Everybody else is in the middle. So I would work hard for political change. Rank choice voting can be on the ballot a ballot uh in in Illinois. and i would do what you can individually to try to reach out to folks that you know uh really do vote differently and try to suspend judgment uh and listen to them and buy the book high conflict well in final question amory tell us a little bit about what you want uh new america to contribute to this debate you've been ahead the, the leader since 2013 you've done some amazingly creative uh projects in many different realms tell us what you would like the legacy um and the continuing work of new america to represent for this country great i suppose i should have said and you can donate to new america in that <laughs> time of year and i'm the i'm the head of a nonprofit so new america you know it was founded as a think tank it's now a think think and action tank but what we're hoping to do over the next 5 years is to use 2026 as a catalyst as a catalyst for building coalitions in a number of broad areas one is absolutely political reform we want a multi-party democracy that is representative and delivers results right those are the key things we need to represent our people and we have to have a government that can deliver results and we think you can get there through a number of political re- reforms we think you need a radically different education system an education system that thinks about birth through workforce uh and workforce that's going to be lifelong learning totally different way of financing higher education the ability to tell whether higher education actually prepares people for the workforce i'm all for liberal arts but we need more than that early education child care a whole infrastructure of care that will create family economic security We need to measure the health of our economy in terms of the strength of our families and the ability to support human flourishing. GDP and unemployment are their numbers, they're relevant, but they don't tell us often what we we really do uh need to know. And we need a different relationship between democracy and technology. Technology has to serve democratic goals uh and we have to to rein in the concentration of power but we also have to to figure how do we build technology that strengthens our democracy and our civic capacity so those are four areas and and foreign policy will be focusing on a people centered politics um 
those are verticals that allow us to think about a new America. There are others, obviously, healthcare, the environment. Uh, but I want for new America to be a catalyst for the kind of big, bold thinking and action that I believe Americans have stood for throughout our history, and we can again. Well, Anne-Marie, you've been very generous with your time. I know you have a busy day. And let me just add, uh, I know New America has operations in Chicago and I think also Indianapolis. So uh, when, when COVID allows easier travel and you're in the Midwest, we would love to coax you down to Carbondale and to, to meet with students and talk to people here in, in this community about the vision of New America and, and the projects you're working on. Because I think these are things that would really resonate down here. Great. Well, I would love to do that. And John, you're just a wonderful interviewer. Well, thank you so much. And we will stay in touch. And I look forward to your next book, Anne-Marie. Thank you. And thanks to everybody who's listening. Thank you for listening to Simon Cast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University. Simon Cast is produced in collaboration with WSIU Public Radio. You can find Simon Cast wherever you listen to podcasts, including NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Please subscribe to new episodes as soon as they're posted and tell your friends about our show. For more information, visit paulsimoninstitute.org. Thank you for listening and thank you for keeping the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well.